I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 14 to 21. 2 Kings, uh, the last time that I preached here, I preached on 1 Peter chapter 1, that kind of bedrock passage about a living hope that we have. And so I decided it was time to go back to the wild and wacky world of Israel in 2 Kings, a passage that may not be very familiar with you. It's a bizarre one. If you don't know anything about the Bible, Israel, for the longest time, they wanted kings to rule over them. And so they get their first king, Saul. And after Saul, they get David, then Solomon. But after Solomon, everything just falls apart. And Solomon has two sons, and they split the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And God, for whatever reason, uh, gives them kings that end up being evil. Um, They're all evil, just about all of them. And so despite having evil kings, God sends prophets to help the people of God. And so where we are in our passage today is in the reign of King Joash. And Elisha is the prophet of God. Now it can be confusing because there's two King Joashes. One in the north and one in the southern. And so the southern kingdom. The one that we're talking about this morning is in the northern kingdom. And so before we read our passage this morning, I want you to see something really quick about King Joash. In verses 10 to 13, we get the summary of his reign. It's just four verses. It's very quick. Maybe your Bible says Jehoash, but it's also Joash, same name. But we get the indictment of his reign in verse 11. And it says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So his bio is just four verses, but then we get our passage today, which one commentator calls King Joash's most crucial moment. And so our text today is full of significant lessons for Israel, but it's also full of lessons for us. And so let's look at this wonderfully odd, bizarre, mysterious passage today, 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14, if you'll read along with me. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, 
He revived and stood on his feet. And in the reading of God's word this morning, would you join me as we pray to seek God's help to understand this bizarre passage? Father, I confess that this is uh, one that's odd to us, that doesn't immediately uh, sink in what the message is here in this passage. And yet, it is full of your spirit. It is breathed out by you. It is profitable for teaching. And so, Father, we ask that you teach us this morning, that you would send your Holy Spirit into our hearts and open our ears and our minds to understand this text But most of all, Father, we want to see Jesus, and so we ask that you show him to us through this text this morning. And we pray this in the name of your Son, amen. Well, one of the most popular TV shows of all time is probably a show that many of you have watched, and it's the workplace comedy, The Office. And so if you don't know anything about The Office, it's about this company that sells paper, and they're located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. But the show is about a man named Michael Scott who manages the Scranton branch. And the thing about Michael Scott is that he is a terrible boss. He's a terrible manager. And now I know that there's some hardcore fans of the office out there, and you're going to disagree with me on this. You're going to say, well, Jim tells him he's the best boss he's ever had. But that doesn't happen until season seven. Michael Scott is a terrible boss. And we see over and over again that he's not a good boss. He can be inappropriate, He at times sabotaged employees' promotions. He can be insensitive. He blames others for his mistakes. He's self-centered. He wants to be the center of attention. He makes promises that he didn't keep. The list goes on and on about the deficiencies of Michael Scott as a leader. But despite this, the Scranton branch is consistently the top branch in sales every single year. And so how is it that this branch with this incompetent leader ends up experiencing some level of success in the sales world? And this is largely due to great sales team of Jim Halpert and Dwight Schrute. In fact, there was one time where Dwight even beat a computer at selling paper. And so despite having a poor leader, the Scranton branch of Dunder Mifflin has been successful due to the people who work in that branch. They perform daily tasks that keep not just the company afloat, but it keeps them successful. And so I think this is kind of like our passage today. Except Israel has this leader, this king, who's not just incompetent, it's just that he's evil. He's he's wicked. And it's been like this for many, many years. In fact, the Bible lists about 40 kings between the northern and southern kingdoms. And in the northern kingdom where Joash is, where our story is, every single one of the kings that they had was evil. In the southern kingdom, 12 were evil, and eight, only eight, did good in the eyes of the Lord. And so Israel had some wicked leadership. However, throughout these years, God sent people prophets, namely Elijah and Elisha. And what these prophets would do, they would protect the people, they would guide the people, they would lead them, they would defend them against the enemies that they had. And so any success that Israel had, any vitality that it had as a people of God, were through these two men, Elijah and Elisha, not because of the kings, but because of the prophets. And so our passage today highlights this really well. Our passage today is about a wicked leader and a godly prophet. But Elisha is close to death in this passage. 
is at the end of his life and Syria is on the doorstep of invading. And so I have three points for us this morning that we can see from our text. Three things that I want to highlight from this text. I want to highlight the orchestrator, the oracle, and I'm kind of cheating on this last one, but the extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary. So let's look at our first point this morning, the orchestrator. And we can see this in verse 14. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. All right, so what's going on here? And I want to start by seeing the state that Israel is in. As I mentioned, Israel has been plagued by wicked kings, and Joash here, he's, he's no different. In the text, what it says is that it says that he was just like his father. Now, we might think that this is a very significant statement here, but there really is because you see when Israel was split in two, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, remained in the southern kingdom, and so the northern kingdom established two new sites for temples to go. Okay, the king up there, he two sites for the temple, and inside the middle of the temple of God, he puts golden calves there. Now, if you know anything at all about the history of Israel in Exodus, golden calves are a big no-no. It's another God. It's, 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 it's putting someone else in front of God. And so it's not that just these kings of Israel, they don't worship Yahweh well, or that they're lukewarm in their faith. It's actually the opposite, is that they're worshiping other gods, the kings of Israel, God's chosen people. And so in addition to this, they've been constantly at war with other nations like Syria, Assyria, and their army has been all but destroyed. If you look at verse 7 of this same chapter, we're told that Israel's army was down to 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust. Israel's hurting here. But despite this, verse 4 shows that they call to God for help, and verse 5 says that God helps by sending a Savior. It's kind of what God does over and over and over again. And so this is important because it's the very same thing happens in our passage today. Israel's wicked. It's lost its way. Its king worships other gods. They realize this is about to get bad. They ask God for help, and God delivers a Savior. Ralph Davis, who's a commentator, used to be in Hattiesburg, Mississippi as well, says, Our writer implies that sometimes Yahweh's pity over the distress of his people trumps the wickedness of the one seeking him for relief. So this is why I titled this point The Orchestrator, because God, he's orchestrating everything that's going on here. God's entered into covenant with his people, and despite having a wicked leader, he's orchestrating things to help them. He's orchestrating things to, to keep them safe. He sends them saviors. He intervenes. And so if we come back to our passage this morning here, verses 14 to 21, the same setup is there. We have a wicked king, an approaching enemy army, and we see Joash running to the prophet of Yahweh, Elisha. The man who's been the defender and strength of Israel for his entire life, just like Elijah was before him. And so what do we see... Or how do we see God as an orchestrator here? And so I think we can see it in three ways. Three ways we see God orchestrating these events here. First, we see it with Elisha and his sickness. So the text says it was the illness that which he was to die. 
And so Elisha, he's at the end of his life here. And now Elisha, he's performed miracles all throughout his life. He's even brought back to life someone who was dead in 2 Kings chapter 4. And yet now it says that he, this prophet, this, this great healer, he now has an illness of which he is to die. It's to be the death of him. And so here God is saying that it's time for Elisha to go. And what they think is that with Elisha going, so goes the protection of Israel. If Elisha goes away, who's going to protect us? Who's going to replace him? Who are they to look for to help? Yet God orchestrates even this illness in the life of Elisha. Second thing we see is Joash acknowledging this. He says the phrase, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, this may not mean anything to you, but these are the same words that Elisha says to Elijah as Elijah is dying in 2 Kings chapter 2. And so by saying this, what Joash is doing, he's acknowledging that God is the true strength of Israel. And so as the prophet is slipping away, is that strength slipping away too? And so Joash, what he does is he goes and he seeks help from God, the one who can orchestrate victory for them. And the third way we can see God as an orchestrator here is that he gives them an oracle. And that's actually going to be our second point. So I'm not going to talk about it just yet. Before we look at the oracle, I want to make one last observation here, uh, a way that we can apply this to our lives. Um, There's this massive message that happens here, and it happens all throughout Scripture. And this is the message. It's the message that the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. Victory or defeat only happens because God orchestrates it to be so. So consider these promises throughout Scripture. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is be silent. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 5, do not be afraid. For the battle is not yours, but God's. First Samuel seventeen forty seven. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. And so I can only imagine the battles that you're currently engaged in as you walk into this room today. Maybe it's relationships with your kids, or raising teenagers, or aging parents. Maybe it's financial hardships or a struggling marriage or abuse or trauma, addiction, illness, doubts, insecurities, acceptance, death and loss, busyness, feelings of inadequacy. The list of battles that we face on a day-to-day basis can go on and on and on. And one thing that Scripture is clear on is that opposition is always going to come. We're not promised comfort in this life. But God is even in control over all these things. And so this is what it means that the battle belongs to the Lord. For those who are in Christ, you fight your battles knowing that it's God who strengthens you. We sing a wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress of God, and we have this line in it that says, He must win the battle. Now, this doesn't mean that there won't be setbacks. The victory may not even come in this life. But regardless, he will win. 
1 John 5, 4 says, For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And so through faith in Christ, we too can rest in knowing that the battle belongs to the Lord. And it strengthens us in our battle against anything that we face. Let's look at our second point this morning, the oracle. So I mentioned there was one more act that God showed how he was orchestrating things here. And so the third way that we see that is through this oracle. And so we get to the meat of our story here. And so you may be wondering what an oracle is. We don't really use that word very often, but an oracle is a medium through which a prophecy is given. And so what we have here is what's called an acted oracle, or what we might say in our language, an object lesson. So Elisha seeks to encourage Joash, and he tells him, grab a bow and arrows. And so Elisha then puts his hands on the king's hands, and he says, open the east window and shoot the arrow out of it, and he shot. And so this is kind of an odd story here, like what's going on with this? And so notice, though, how Elisha puts his hands on the king's hands. Very symbolic, saying that God is guiding him, that God is guiding his people, And so then Elisha, he explains the picture that he has given this king. And so if you look halfway through verse 17, you see this. He says, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. And so the Hebrew word here for victory is the same word used for salvation. So it's the arrow of salvation that is being shot. And so Elisha, what he's saying is that the arrow symbolizes the victory that Israel is going to have over Syria. And so Elisha then tells him to shoot more arrows out of the window. He says, strike the ground. Maybe your translation says, smite the ground with arrows. So let's stop for a moment. If the arrows that are in Joash's quiver represent victories, and Elisha's telling him to shoot them out the window, what should Joash have done? If all the arrows mean victories, what should Joash have done with them? He should have unloaded every single arrow that he had. And so if these are the arrows of the Lord's victories, I'm sending every single one that I've got out of the window. But what did Joash do? He shot three and then he stopped. And the text says that Elisha was furious with him. He said, you should have shot five or six times. And he goes on to say, now you're only going to deal a partial blow to Syria. And so why did Joash stop with three arrows? Why did he stop with three arrows? Did did he just not understand what Elisha was talking about? Uh, Did he think it was just some silly exercise that this dying old man was having him do? Did he want Israel to lose? I mean, he was wicked after all. I don't think it was any of those things. And I think there's a huge lesson that's being taught here. The real issue with with, uh, Joash was that he lacked zeal. He was half-hearted. He didn't obey enthusiastically enough. Ralph Davis says it this way, Elisha gives Joash a blank check of the word of God, and the king says, thank you, I'll only cash half of it. He has this blank check, and he cashes half of it. And so here we see Joash, he has enough faith to come to Elisha, but he doesn't have enough to destroy Syria. He just wants to contain them. And so the result of this oracle is that we have full display here 
half-heartedness of Joash. And so if we're to read on, what we would see that those three victories of Syria happens in verse 25. But it's not until chapter 17, just four chapters later, that Israel goes off into exile. They're defeated. So if I had to guess, we could probably all resonate with Joash here and these feelings of half-heartedness. Have we ever encountered a half-hearted Christianity in our own lives? One commentator says, but some of us using a degree of right theology make our Joash response. We have become convinced of total depravity and that that is our condition, that we're so bound by certain habits, inabilities, behaviors, and reactions that even though we claim to be Christ, there is no hope of change or transformation. So it would be very helpful for us this morning to examine ourselves for a moment. What are the areas in life that we are half-hearted? Maybe when it comes to our sin. Where are we managing sin instead of putting it to death? What about our prayer lives? I can be the first to say that mine can often be half-hearted. What about our financial giving? What about our studies or our work? Do we ever approach those things half-heartedly? Are we just using three arrows when it comes to these things? We've already seen that God's the orchestrator. The battle belongs to him. We should be firing every arrow that we have because he's given us the arrows of victory. Over 100 years ago, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this text. And it's about how we can tend to be half-hearted towards our sin. And he brings up this idea of besetting sin, sins that, that just, we just tend to struggle with over and over again. And this is what he says about besetting sin. Oh, says one, that is my besetting sin. How often is that used as an excuse? If I were to go across town tonight and a dozen men were to come around and knock me down and rob me, I should be beset by them. But when I stop at home and ask them into my house and feast with them and let them rob me, I cannot talk about being beset, for I have invited them there. Some believers tolerate themselves in sin. I repeat, they tolerate themselves in sin. So what are you saying, Jeremy? Are you saying that we have to be sinless? Are you saying that we have to be perfect? That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is this. There's a difference between besetting sin and merely tolerating it. There's a difference between being beset by sin and tolerating it. And so how do you know? How do you know if you're tolerating sin or if you're being beset by sin? Well, uh, the late David Pallison would say that which direction are you going? Which direction are you going? So there's a great article by Pallison. He talks about this, and it's called Sanctification is a Direction. Encourage this to you, David Pallison. Sanctification is direction. But what his point is, is the direction that you're going matters. Are you growing in your will and desire to fight sin? He says some people grow by leaps and bounds like gazelles, but others just inch along and crawl along. But what matters is the direction that you are going. Do we tolerate it or do we hate it? Which direction are you going? And so here we can have a lesson from Joash. Don't be half-hearted towards your sin. Fight it. Remember, Philippians 2 reminds us that it's God who wills and works within us. 
This even includes our fight with our own sin. So let's look at our last point, the extraordinary. So our passage ends today with one of the strangest, most bizarre endings in Scripture. It's extraordinary here. We see it in verses 20 and 21. Elisha dies, they bury him. Then sometime later, this no-name man from Israel, he dies, and they're having a funeral, and it's rushed because they have this band of marauders come and invade them. And so what they do is they just throw him in a tomb. It happens to be the same tomb that Elisha is in, and he touches Elisha's bones, and he walks out of the tomb. It's a weird ending. That's how it ends. There's no commentary on it. There's no mention of it. There's no, well, let's explain what's happening here. It just ends, and it goes on and says Cereal is defeated. Syria is defeated three times. So what are we to make of this? Well, it's because of these two verses that I wanted to preach this passage this morning. On first glance, this seems so strange. It seems so bizarre, but, but maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe it shouldn't be strange and bizarre to us. I mean, think about how Elijah went out. Elijah never died. It says he was taken up into heaven. And so, wouldn't it be fitting for Elisha, the guy who asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, to go out in a remarkable way too? And so I think there's a huge purpose to this. If you recall back to our first point, we asked the question, what would happen to God's people without Elisha all the while having wicked kings? What would happen to God's people without Elisha? And so I think what God is doing here is that he's sending a message to his people through this act. Let me explain what I mean by this. If you still have your Bibles open, look at verse 21. It says, the man was thrown into the tomb. If you look at two verses later, verse 23, at the end of the verse, it says, nor has he cast them into exile yet. These two words are the same root word in Hebrew here. Being thrown into the grave and being thrown into exile, right? Israel being thrown into exile, this man thrown into the grave. And so Israel is about to head into exile. We see it, 1 Kings 17, right? They go into exile. And so the prophet here, he has one last lesson for Israel to have. And it's that they would have hope. That though the prophet Elisha might be dead, the power behind his words is very much alive. It says, stay close to the words of the prophets of God and there'll be life. Elisha, Elijah, they might be gone, but God isn't gone. And even while you're in exile, he's going to send prophets to help you, to instruct you, to lead you, to keep you safe. Hope isn't lost for Israel. But there's also something else here. Tony Moreta calls this the messianic miracle. There's only a handful of resurrections accounts in the Bible. And this is one of them. It's meant to display the resurrection power of God. For those who follow the God of Elisha, death doesn't get the final say. One day, they too will be raised from the dead just as this man had been. As the commentator says, it's as if the last word from both Elijah and Elisha is, don't think death has dominion over you. Right? That's their last message. Death doesn't have dominion over you. 
And so as Israel, they head into exile, they can hope in the life-giving word of God and his resurrection power. And so this is what I'll close with this morning. What does this mean for us? Israel has all these lessons. Israel has all these things that they can look to to hope in. What does that mean for us, Tupelo, Mississippi, 2023, thousands of years later? What does this passage have to say to us? Well, I think it's clear in this passage that there's a bigger enemy than Syria. There's an ultimate enemy. And that enemy is death itself. And so in this account of Elisha's bones here, what we're seeing is not just a comfort for the people of Israel, but a foretaste of what's to come. A foretaste of the Elisha that's, that's to come that's even greater than this Elisha. Matthew chapter 11, it talks about John the Baptist, and he connects him with Elijah, saying that John the Baptist is, Elijah was the forerunner for John the Baptist. And that would mean that Elisha is connected with Jesus. That, That Elisha is the prophetic symbol of Jesus. And so just like Elisha, Jesus would too die. Matthew Henry, he wrote that by Jesus' death and burial, the grave is made to all believers a safe and happy happy passage to life. So that through the grave, for every believer, there's a safe and happy passage to life. And so if you see, if the ultimate enemy in this passage is death, and if death has been undone, then we know that for those who are in Christ, death is not the ultimate destiny for us. Just like that unnamed man that encountered Elisha's bones, like he woke up alive, so does those who encounter Jesus' death. So the arrow of the Lord's victory in this passage isn't just an arrow of victory over Syria, it's also a victory over death itself. And the arrow of God's salvation was shot through the incarnation and it hit the ground at Calvary where the enemy was defeated. And so to borrow from John Owen... At Calvary, what we see is we see the death of death because of the death of Christ. And so this is the greatest news of all for us. Because if Romans 6.23 is right, and the wages of sin is death, and if my sin's been nailed to the cross, and Jesus was raised from the dead, this means that my sin's been paid for. I no longer have to fear death, because death doesn't get the final word. And so this is the entire argument that Paul is making in Romans 6. And here's a little snippet of it, starting in verse 8. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so it's in Elisha's life-giving bones that I want you to see Jesus' life-giving cross. So how can I make this a reality for me? I've said it a few times this morning, but I want to make sure you hear it. Jesus' life-giving cross is available to all people, but there's only one way to access it, and it's through faith. Ephesians 2.8 says it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And so here's the thing about God's grace, though. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you're never too good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For you Christians that are struggling with sin, Christ will carry you through. 
Jesus endured to the end on your behalf. Now he comes back alongside of you, carrying you through, constantly interceding to the Father on your behalf. Rest in that. Let it empower you. Trust that he who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to completion. And to those of you who have not yet believed in Christ this morning, go to him today. Go to the foot of the cross. It's not too late. Believe in him. Surrender to him. And you'll hear these words. My son, my daughter, all your sins are forgiven. So my question for you today is, do you have this faith that gives a life that transcends even death itself? Let's pray.